Father, we do enter into your presence this morning to worship you, to declare your ultimate worth and your ultimate sovereignty, and to recognize when we come into this room, we come in because you are in control of every moment. Whether we're gathered and assembled as a church or not, you have sovereign control over every moment. And in this moment, Father, we're choosing to give our full attention to you. And Father, we're, we're trying, we're trying the best we can in our human flesh to give all of our hearts and our minds to you in this moment. As we praise you for all that you are, and we praise you for all that you've done. This is the reason we assemble, to praise you and to be reminded of what matters most in these lives that we live day to day. The worship and obedience of a sovereign king as we live with our hearts and our minds set on eternity. And the glory that you have reserved for, for those who are your children into all eternity. And so, Father, we give this time to you. We give our full attention to you in this moment. And we read your word from 1 Timothy 2, where you say, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so, Father, on this day and on this week, as we um, have the opportunity and responsibility to participate as citizens of the land in which you have placed us in this world, we have the opportunity to vote, we have a responsibility to vote, and Father, in this, this very week, we turn our hearts and minds to you and we turn over the leadership of our local government, of our state government, and our nation and our world. Father, we turn that over to you. And we do pray as you instruct us, supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings for all people, including kings and those who are in high positions. So Father, for everyone on the ballot, this week, we pray for them. We pray that you would be working in their lives, that you would surround them with counselors that would point them to you, that your word and that the presence of your Holy Spirit would speak in, would cut to the heart, cause conviction of sin and a desire to live for your glory and live in obedience to you. But Father, as we pray for those who are in authority we pray for the purpose that you give us in verse 2 here. That those who are your children might lead a quiet and peaceful life, godly and dignified in every way. And Father, we come before you for our state, for our nation, for our city, recognizing we live in a divided land. But what we cry out for most, Father, is that your people would be united. In the division we see all around us, Father, we long to be as your people, those who live in a peaceable way, dignified and godly, no matter the circumstances. 
And so, Father, may we as your church represent you and what you desire us to represent to the lost world, where we, may, where we speak the truth of our convictions, where we hold fast to what your word says to us. We stand on the scriptures where we stand on the scriptures. And, Father, we live in peace and godliness where the nation is divided, may your church be united, Father, so that those who are around can see the difference of lives lived pursuing righteousness and holiness. And Father, where we get it wrong, give us good grace. But Father, may your spirit lead us and guide us in every way. Give every one of us wisdom for those who have already cast ballots and those who will cast ballots this week. Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom and we pray that your will would be done in our church, in our community, in our nation, and in this world that you have created. And above all else, Father, we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because what we want most, Father, is to see you return and to see you usher your children into your eternal kingdom so that we may ever be in your presence with the Lord. And Father, for all of the other needs, as we remember this week and, and election week, Father, we, we ask that you guide that whole process and that your will be done. That you give us just and righteous leaders and that we as a church can speak the truth boldly and love the lost well. But Father, there's other needs. There's those that are sick in this room today. There's those that are hurting. There's those that have deep questions in their hearts and in their minds. Those that are searching for the ultimate answers of who you are and whether or not they can believe in you or trust you. And Father, for every heart and mind represented in this room, Father, I pray that you would be present, that your spirit would move and guide us. God, most of all, we pray that you would be the one speaking through your word today. We praise you because we know that you will. We know that your word is living and active and will cut into our hearts today. So, Father, we give ourselves to you as we prepare for you to speak. In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us for worship today. I'm going to ask the, the families ready for child dedication to go ahead and join me on stage. So kids, don't go to your classes yet. Sit tight for just a couple minutes. We've got some families uh, coming up here on stage. We've got, um, this is, I think, the third one of these we've done in about, I guess, three months. I guess we've done one about once a month for the last three months since we moved back into this room. And it's fun because there's just more and more um, kids and more and more families coming forward. Y'all kind of close the gap a little bit. Yeah, y'all move this way. Good, good, good. Um, so we've got a handful of families up here on stage with some other um, support family members um, out here uh, amongst the, the audience today as well. So I'm going to start. I'm just going to go in the order they, they stood up here. Y'all move this way just a little bit more. So you guys know this family, I'm sure, at least one of them. Um, this is uh, Jason and Emily Hundley, and they're here with their youngest daughter, Miss Mia Kate, who just turned one a couple weeks ago and is having a snack because I talk too long. 
Um, and then this is um, older siblings, Wyatt, Logan, and Ellie um, here to celebrate with Mia as her parents dedicate her to the Lord. And what we're going to do here is you're all going to be a part of this. If you haven't been in one of these services before, I want you to know that I consider your part in this to be very important to the commitment that these people make as parents and families. Because here in a few minutes, after I introduce all these kids, I'm going to ask them two questions. And the parents are going to make two commitments in your presence and in front of the Lord. And then I'm going to ask you two questions. And you as a congregation are going to make some commitments to the Lord and to these families. So I want you to all be participating. And by your presence here today, remember to pray for these families and these children. So Jason and Emily asked me to read a couple verses over Miss Mia. 1 Timothy 4.12 Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. In Colossians 1.9 From the day we heard about you, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And also here with the Hunleys um, celebrating Mia today are um, grandparents Jerry and Kathy Hendricks and Chris and Donna Hunley, as well as Uncle Isaac here to celebrate. Next in line here, we have um, Will and Leah Ross with their son, Walker Scott Ross. And uh, Walker's got some... Yeah, you, you see somebody out there. Yeah, you've got some family. You've got some extra people here to celebrate today. Um, Walker's got a couple sets of grandparents, uh, Noah and Ruth Stokes and Scotty and Marlene Ross, and he's got an Aunt Sarah here and um, great aunt. He's got great grandparents here. There's all sorts of people here to celebrate with Walker. And um, they asked to, this was actually a really neat um, one to be a part of because Pretty much every family shows the same scripture. So I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to read it over all of them. But uh, Proverbs 3, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. And next we have... Mr. Quinn Griffin, here with his family, with Ryan and Lindsay, and um, big brother Alexander, big sister Annie down here, and uh, they chose for us, oh, I was going to say too, Walker, I said Mia's birthday was a couple weeks ago, Walker's birthday was like two days ago, Friday, yeah, so happy birthday to Walker, everybody, um, I'm not leading us in song. Um, this, is, this is Quinn Griffin over here. Um, Quinn Raymond Griffin, and Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And Quinn's family here to, gather, to celebrate with him today, grandparents Raymond and Janice and Michelle Sheffer, and then viewing online, we've got Leanne and Terry Griffin, Matt Sheffer, great-grandma, Mildred, aunts, uncles, and cousins, all sort of people. That's the cool thing about doing the live stream is we have family that are extended from all over that can come and participate. Am I boring you, Quinn? I'm sorry. I know. It's, it's, I, it's, I know it's hard. It's hard. Um, but this is Quinn Raymond, and um, he is a special joy to celebrate with today. He um, was just born in June, so he's one of our extra little ones here today to celebrate with. Good job, Alexander.
I made Alexander nervous today by talking about him being on stage. All right, Isaiah, you ready? This is your moment. All right, I told Isaiah he wasn't allowed to come out here if he outdressed me, but he did. So this is Cord and Tabitha King with Isaiah and Camilla Ivester, as well as Easton King here to be dedicated to the Lord. And uh, Cord and Tabitha are here dedicating their son Easton as well as Isaiah and Camilla to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, to point them towards Christ. And we're going to continue to pray for this family as long as Isaiah and Camilla are a part of this family. They're going to bring them and point them towards Christ and pray unto that end for the day that they will one day meet Christ. So Easton, Isaiah, and Camilla are here to be dedicated by Cord and Tabitha to the Lord. Um, they have some, some friends and family here gathered with them as well. We've got uh, grandparents, Karen Bennett, uh, Grandpa, uh, Raymond King. We've got Crystal, Luana, and Marvin Hall, which are aunt and cousins. Wendy, Sydney, and Paisley, which is a former foster family, is here to celebrate with Isaiah and Camilla and as well as Easton. Okay, so I'm going to come down here to the end now. And this is Miss Ella Tanner. You excited, Ella? So this is um, Ella with her parents, Mason and Lane Tanner. And um, uh, as I said before, we've got Proverbs 3 all over the place over here. So I'm going to pray this over actually all of these children as um, the, the kings also chose uh, Proverbs 3 as well as the, the Rosses. But for, um, for Ella here, um, she has her grandparents here as well that are here to visit and celebrate with her. And uh, Mason and Lane are here to dedicating her to the Lord. Um, you guys saw, many of you, the opportunity I had to baptize uh, Mason just a few weeks ago. This is an amazing young family that is committed to um, following Jesus and to pointing Ella in that direction as well. So I'd encourage you, as we bring these people on stage... Um, as I said, there's a commitment they're going to make, there's a commitment you're going to make. And part of the commitment you're about to make is I really want you to get to know these young families and, and parents. Because this is not, I, I know these people personally, I've walked with them um, through different challenges and different seasons of life. Seeing what God is doing in the Tanners, seeing what God is doing in the Kings, what God is doing and has done over the long term in the Griffin family, Watching Leah and Will and Jason and Emily, these are amazing families, amazing parents. And let me just say, we're blessed as a church to have the opportunity to partner with parents that love their children and love Christ as these parents do. So when I ask you to make these commitments, I ask you to take seriously before the Lord what we're about to do here. Parents, I'll start with you. Two questions, which involve two two-word answers. I'll simply ask you the questions, and then you'll together say, we will, in response to the questions. Parents, will you commit to raise your children in a way that encourages them to know God and love him with all of their heart, soul, and might? Parents, will you commit to partner with this body of believers by encouraging your children to engagement with other believers for teaching, encouragement, and service? Now, church, same format, two we will questions for you. Church, will you commit to these parents to pray for them, 
encourage them, mentor them, and equip them as they seek to fulfill these commitments to their children. And now parents, or now church, will you commit to these children to pray for them, encourage them, mentor them, and equip them to know God, love Him, and follow Him? Amen. In my prayer, I'm going to read Proverbs 3 over these kids. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves those he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Let's pray. Father, I praise you for five wonderful families and these wonderful children that are brought before you and before your assembled body, the church, to be dedicated to you. Father, we recognize that this is an important function of the church and the family working together. As your good design of both structures is for the family to lead in the growth of the children and to point children towards you. But God, you have given us an opportunity as a church to partner with the families in that role. So God, we pray for Ella. And we pray for Mason and Lane as they disciple, as they parent, as they train and teach Ella that she would follow you and that she would love you. And so, Father, for the kings, for Cord and Tabitha, give them wisdom as they walk the road of parenting with Easton, with Isaiah, and with Camilla. Father, we pray that each of these three would grow to love you, that would know you, receive the truth of the gospel, and that you would encourage Cord and Tabitha in every challenge, every difficulty they face along the way. And that, Father, your presence would be in Isaiah, would be in Easton, and would be in Camilla. And, Father, for Quinn Raymond, and for Alexander, and for Annie, Father, we pray that your gospel would, be, would grow fruit in their heart and in their lives. We pray for wisdom for Ryan and Lindsay, that they would not lean on their own understanding, but they would acknowledge you and that their children would see and follow in that example to acknowledge you and to trust in you. We pray particularly for Quinn, Father, that you would give them wisdom in parenting him and in pointing him towards yourself. And for Walker Scott, Father, we praise you for Will and Leah. We praise you for your presence in their family, in their lives. We praise you for multiple generations of faithfulness that they have seen and for the generations here gathered with Walker today. We pray, Father, that you would show them how to parent him, to lean not on his own understanding, but to acknowledge you in every path of his life and that you would be present in Will and Leah in the challenges they face on that task. We praise you, Father. And for Jason and Emily, Father, 
We praise you for another beautiful life with Miss Mia. We praise you for your gift to the Hunley family, and we pray that you would give them wisdom to parent Mia well. We pray that, that big brothers and sister Wyatt, Logan, and Ellie would give her a good example of following you and loving you. We pray for Timothy 4.12 over her, that no one would look down on her for her young age, but that she would, even at an early age, set an example for believers in word, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. And we praise you, Father. Give wisdom to each of these families and give us as a church wisdom and insight into your scriptures so that we might encourage them well, equip them well, and train these kids well to know you and follow you. May the gospel be explicit in each of these kids' lives so that they can know you and know what you have truly done to pay for their sins and to give them the gift of salvation. And may they all receive it. And in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thanks for coming up here today. Okay, well, now we will let the kids be dismissed to kids' worship. But first, wait, before you go, kids, remind your parents that you're supposed to be back here at 4 o'clock today because we've got a really fun day planned for our fall festival tonight. Okay, now you can go. But remember, 4 o'clock, all kids, 4 o'clock. And for the rest of you, I'll tell you, you're all welcome to be here at 4 o'clock for our fall festival. It's a, it's a family event, multi-generational event. Don't think it's just a kids' ministry event. We would love for all of you to be here. I'll explain it this way. This is not a trunk or treat fall festival where everybody's going to leave with a big bag of candy, so don't come expecting that. This is a multi-generational fun activities. Uh, get a bowl of chili and enjoy it. Go make a s'more at a fire pit. It's supposed to be about 20 degrees colder than it actually is going to be. It's not going to feel like fall tonight, but still, it's going to be a fall festival with chili and s'mores, and we're just going to pretend that the weather is what it's supposed to be. Um, but come four to seven, as I said, anyone, um, any age, we'd love for you to be here. Um, there's plenty of activities to do as a family. A few other things going on in the life of the church. We've got lots of stuff out there for you. Um, we've got a sign-up sheet for the men's breakfast, which is this Saturday. And so we'd love for you to be a part of that. Guys, you can come if you don't sign up, but there's more food the more people sign up. So it's a good idea to, to sign up for that. Uh, we also have a um, flyer out there about poinsettias. Christmas season is coming, so if you want to order poinsettias through the church, do them in, in honor of or in memory of somebody, you can do that with this form. There's a form about our um, Thanksgiving dinner, which is coming soon, um, November 20th. Um, that's a Sunday night here. This will explain it. If you've never participated in our church family Thanksgiving before, just come. Just do it. You're going to want to be here. It's one of my favorite things we do as a church. It's, it's out here in the gym, and uh, th this will explain how the food's going to work. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun, so make plans to join us for that. Um, if you don't have one of these prayer guides, I'll remind you, this is, this is the last week to join with our church family in praying together as we come upon the 50th anniversary of Fellowship Bible Church, which is actually this week. And so next Sunday, we're going to gather, we're going to have some testimony videos that we're going to show you of just celebrating what God has done over the course of 50 years. 
Um, and actually, we're going to start the celebration Wednesday night. And I would really encourage you to be here at 7 o'clock Wednesday night in this room for a special prayer and worship service. Uh, we did one of these a few weeks ago as we kicked off the 50 days, and it was so amazing. It was so fun. We had a good group of people here, but I will tell you, we had a relatively small group of people here, but God moved, and those that were here just loved it. And I'm going to encourage you, you don't want to miss out on Wednesday night. It's going to be great. We're going to worship and pray. You're going to want to be here for that um, opportunity. And then lastly, I'll tell you that um, this sermon is going to be a little bit different, a little bit, um, there's just long lists. And so if you didn't get one of these, you can get one. This is sort of a fuller ver version of sermon notes than I would typically give you. Now, if you would, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. As we prayed, I prayed for the upcoming elections. And I'll remind you that we have an opportunity and a responsibility to vote, and I, I hope you do. And one thing that we remember in this season of time, anytime there's an election, is we remember this truth that leadership matters. Leadership over local governments, over state governments, national governments, those that get appointed to positions of leadership have a great effect over a nation, a state, an organization, a school, a company, a church. Any group of any kind can be largely affected by leaders. And God cares deeply about leaders. That's what we'll see today in the scriptures that he's given us for today, starting in 1 Timothy 3. But every one of us needs a good lesson on the importance of leaders. And this is one of the things I counsel young people on all the time and the sort of counsel that nobody wants to hear. In order to grow into adulthood, you need to have one really bad job. Because you don't really recognize a good job until you've had a bad job. You don't really recognize a good boss that leads well, organizes well, encourages employees until you've had a bad boss. And it's an important growth point that each of us will go through at some point where we just get into a, into a job, into an organization, or maybe a career that we just recognize, this is not for me, God's moving me somewhere else. It builds character, it builds strength. For me, many of you know my story, um, that for eight years prior to, really, up until the month before I started at this church, now almost 13 years ago, for the previous eight years, I worked in three different states, or in two different states, for three different Chick-fil-A restaurants. That was my thing. High school, college, and through seminary. Wasn't something that I was going to pursue as a career, but eight years is a long time. And I quit about five times. I quit, of course, the last two. I only quit on them once. But the one that I worked for the longest, I worked for one for um, almost seven years. And I quit on him three different times. Because I always thought, I'm going to find something better. Because I really don't like this job. I really don't like doing what I'm doing. Frying chicken, it gets old after a time. You feel greasy, it wears you down. It's just not a fun thing to stand in a, um, in a kitchen with 300 degree oil all the time and just surrounded by oil and raw chicken. Not a, gla not a glamorous job. But I kept coming back. And I kept coming back to this one store in West Tennessee. Again, I quit on him three different times. Kept coming back. Then I went, moved to South Carolina, had another job I was miserable in. And you know what? My brain tricked me. 
Because sitting in that other miserable job I found in South Carolina, I thought, you know, Chick-fil-A was better than this. I'm going to go to Chick-fil-A. So I went to a Chick-fil-A in South Carolina thinking I had a good experience at Dick's Chick-fil-A. I kind of hated the job, but I liked the environment. That's what kept me coming back. It was, it was the owner. I didn't realize it was the owner at the time because when I went to the second Chick-fil-A I worked for in South Carolina, I thought it is the organization of Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A has a unique culture, right? There's a strength to their culture. It starts at the top. The owner of Chick-fil-A, who I had the opportunity to meet in college, was super impressed. I went to school. I actually worked with one of his granddaughters. I thought, man, this is just a great organization. This is who I want to work for. And then I recognized that not every Chick-fil-A restaurant owner is the same. So every restaurant had its different culture. It took me a while. It took me one good operator here that I came back to three times, one bad operator in South Carolina. Then I went to another operator in South Carolina and again recognized, man, it's just not the same. There is something about working for a good boss that changes everything. There is something about working for a, about serving under a good leader that makes even things that are monotonous and hard and difficult somehow seem more fun. Because the culture of a workplace matters. The, the, the behavior of employees matters. The character of the people at top matter. And even if you're doing a job that on the surface is not fun and is hard and can be miserable, when you do it with people that work hard, are responsible, and keep a positive attitude, it goes a long way. So that was my lesson in that work environment, that leaders matter. A lesson everybody needs to learn. And in Scripture, we see that God desires leaders of His church to be a certain way. That God defines leadership for us as Christians, and God, God desires to use a certain type of people in these leadership positions. And so what we're going to see today, here's the end of the story right from the beginning. God's primary concern in selecting leaders for his church is not the leader's skills, it's not the leader's talents, it's not the leader's experience or abilities, it's the leader's character. That's what matters most to God, and therefore it's what matters most to us. And as we approach this, we're, we're going to go down two different learning tracks here today, okay? I want you to walk away today with two different concepts in your mind. Number one, we need to know how we identify people that are quality, qualified to serve as leaders of churches, of organizations, whatever. What does God say about people that are qualified to serve as leaders? But, but here's the other application here, a little bit more personal. God's definition of a qualified leader is really, because God's primary concern is the leader's character, God's definition of a qualified leader is his definition of a mature Christian. That's the ultimate application for every single one of us in this room today. That we need to know what is the track that God desires us to be on in order to grow, to, to serve him more, and to represent Christ more. Because ultimately, we're trying to be like Christ, right? If we want to be Christians, which literally means little Christ, if we want to be Christians and represent Christ, we need to know what God wants us to represent. What character traits, what attributes, what qualifications is God seeking for those mature leaders within his church? So today, we're going to talk a lot about church leaders. 
But as we talk a lot about church leaders, because that's the primary application of what God is saying here in 1 Timothy 3, I want you to remember that for most of us, the other application is simply that we would know what God says maturity looks like so that we can follow, we can grow, and we can seek maturity. And we're going to go about this in three steps. We're going to ask one introductory question here before we dive into 1 Timothy 3. What kinds of leaders is the Bible actually defining for us? And if you have the little pamphlet with the notes, you've got four words there listed under what kinds of leaders does the Bible define. You have pastors, overseers, elders, and deacons. And depending on what sort of church tradition you grew up in, you might come up with more. Because I didn't put priest in there. I didn't put bishop in there. There's lots of other words that could be used to describe church leaders that aren't put in there. Because what I want to talk about is what are the words that the New Testament actually uses and how do we understand them? And because I'm not good at doing math in front of people, I'm not going to start with number one on the list. I'm going to do number two. We're going to go to overseers. Overseers is the word that's going to come up a lot in the passage that we read. We're going to read 1 Timothy 3 and parts of Titus 1 today. We're not going to go there yet because first I want to define what these words are that will be used. Overseer is the word that is used in 1 Timothy and Titus a lot. And the word could be translated as bishop. Some people translate it as bishop. The, the Greek word there simply means a supervisor, somebody that oversees work. It's not necessarily a religious office in, in ancient Greek, in the language. It gets used of people in all walks of life. But it is what the word that Paul chooses to use to describe a particular role within the church. Overseers are important people in the church. And you can, you can just pencil in the word supervisor. It may be a better translation for us to understand what a supervisor is. They are the ones that lead and organize the church, according to 1 Timothy 3. Overseer, supervisor, episkopos, if you want the Greek word. The next word, number three on your list, number two in my head, is elder. Presbyteros is the Greek word for all of you nerdy Greek people out there like me. It's actually more commonly used throughout the New Testament. And here's what I'm going to tell you. This is the word, presbyteros, it means elder. It is actually used interchangeably with the word overseer. So if you've never heard us as a church talk about probably three of those four, you recognize, okay, our church, Fellowship Bible Church, has pastors, we have elders, we have deacons. We don't have overseers. Why not? Because those two words, overseer and elder, are used interchangeably in 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, and in other places. Let me give you an example. Titus 1.5, Paul is telling Titus, your job is to appoint elders, presbyteros. And then, in the same paragraph, he describes the people that Titus is appointing, the elders, as overseers. He changes the word within the same paragraph, describing the same group of people. So don't let that confuse you. Overseers and elders, the New Testament uses those to describe the same group of people that are called to lead the church. Both those words will come up today, so I want to make that clear. It's interchangeable in Acts 20. It's interchangeable in 1 Peter 5 as well. What this tells us is that overseers, elders, that's the primary leadership role over the church. We at Fellowship Bible Church call them elders. We currently have nine of them that are serving right now as elders. They are the ones that are responsible for organizing the church, for leading the church, and for the teaching of the church. Because here's a couple things that I'll tell you about the way the New Testament talks about teachers and leaders. 
leaders teach and teachers lead. The primary leadership task, which we'll talk about next week, the primary leadership task of the biblical leader is to present this book. The primary leadership role is a teaching role. To describe to you what God says he wants from you, that is leadership according to the New Testament. Leaders are teachers and teachers are leaders. The other thing, important thing to know about the way teaching works in the New Testament in this passage and others, great leaders demonstrate solid character and false teachers demonstrate bad character. All through 1 Timothy, this is one of those themes that you don't see until you look closely. When Paul is distinguishing sound teaching from false teaching, he all of a sudden changes from information to behavior. Because for, for Paul, sound teachers are those that live out what they preach and teach, those that act according to strong character, those who pursue holiness and righteousness. And false teachers are those who have low character, who have bad character. Bad character is connected to false teaching very, very tightly in 1 Timothy. So you can't have somebody that's a good teacher and has bad character, not in 1 Timothy and Titus. Now, number three slash one, number one on your list, three in my head, pastors. I wanted to define the other two first because the definition is clearer. And this is what may confuse you, so just hang on with me for a second. The Bible does not, you're, you're going to like write this down and you're going to question me and that's okay. The Bible does not clearly define the role of pastor in the New Testament. The word pastor literally is just the word shepherd. Fancy Greek word, poimen. It can be translated as either pastor or shepherd in the New Testament. And see, in 1 Timothy, we have these lists of elders slash overseers should be like this. Deacons should be like this. And the word pastor never shows up in either of the lists. So how do we then understand the role of pastor? Because there's only one time that human pastors are, are described in the New Testament. And that's in a list in Ephesians 4 where Paul says the church has been given prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Every other time that word is used as a noun in the New Testament, it's describing Jesus, the great shepherd, the great pastor. The word pastor is most commonly used as a verb. So what I will tell you is, a, is to pastor is a function and not a role in the New Testament, okay? The New Testament doesn't say pastors do this, elders do this, deacons do this. The New Testament says elders are those who pastor. It's one of the functions to shepherd, to care, to teach, to lead the flock. So all throughout 1 Timothy and Titus, what we're going to talk about today, I want you to see that, that not only are elders and overseers used interchangeably, so too put pastors in that category in your mind too. Because the New Testament sees all of those three words as describing the same person, the pastor, teacher, elder, leader of the congregation. So we as a church, we have three people we call pastors, we have nine people we call elders, and I'm in the middle category that's both. But the New Testament defines the qualifications for pastors, elders, overseers the same. So when we define what that person looks like according to 1 Timothy 3, pastors, elders, overseers, all same category, okay? Deacons, that's different. 
The word deacon means servant. Deacons are those who serve. They're, they're not the primary leaders, teachers, shepherds of the church. Deacons are the behind-the-scenes people, those that serve the church in other ways. And so, in a couple weeks, we're going to hone in on the office of deacon and how it's different from the office, the position of elder, overseer, pastor. Okay, so I want to introduce those terms to you so that we can be on the same page as we're unpacking the terms. That's not the point of the service or of the sermon, but that's a necessary introductory definition for us. Okay, so now we jump in 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 3 first. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. And in a passage written to a different person in a different city, but very much the same, Paul says to Titus, in Titus 1, 5 through 9, and it will be up here on the screen. You don't have to turn there, but you can. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders, not overseers, but elders. Again, they're interchangeable. That you might appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. That is what God defines as a leader. And in that, we're going to approach these two long lists in two categories. And there's other traits, okay? So if you keep reading in 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1, you notice I cut us off here. Because today, I'm focusing on, we're focusing on the character of the leader. Next week, we'll go into some other attributes, the skills and the maturity that the leader must show. But today, we focus on those attributes listed here that speak directly to the leader that models character. And in this, again, remember, for each of us that aren't, if, if you're not a leader in any sense, and you're like, I don't care about who I should vote for as leaders, as elders and deacons of the church, tell me what I'm supposed to hear today. I'll tell you what you're supposed to hear today. How God defines godly character for a leader is how God defines godly character for you. It's what you should be aspiring to as well. So 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, lots of the same characteristics. We'll start with number one, above reproach. Titus 3, 2 uses this word above reproach that's sort of a category. To be above reproach is this general statement that everything else that follows is going to be, are going to be examples that are given in how to live above reproach. Does above reproach mean that in order for a person to be a good leader, they can never mess up? Certainly not. Because we know that to be inconsistent with other scriptures, which tell us that we're still battling a sin nature, 
which tell us that Christians, even good, mature Christian leaders, still fail and still sin. Paul and Peter were both great Christian leaders, and they disagreed and they fought. Paul had an argument with Barnabas as well. We see that sometimes leaders can get it wrong. So what does above reproach mean? The idea is that a leader has strong character. And that when you hear about that person, and you know that person behind the scenes, that there's not glaring stains against their character. That you can't in your mind be like, oh, but I saw how he was when he worked at Chick-fil-A back in the day. Or I saw, I saw the way he treated his wife. I saw the way he spoke to his kids. I saw what he did at his son's basketball game when he didn't get the right call from the referee. Been there, done that. Those sort of things are what, are what Paul is talking about when he uses the word above reproach. Titus 1.6 says above reproach too. 1 Timothy 3.2, Titus 1.6. This is used to describe somebody that is blameless, not guiltless, not sinless. But God does not expect, because God does not expect his leaders to be perfect. God expects his followers to grow up, to mature, to grow over time, to better reflect the character of who Christ is as we grow over age. And so, the more you follow Jesus, the more you grow up. Christians should be more above reproach now than when we first started following Jesus. You, as a follower of Christ, now look at your character, look at your maturity, look at the sin in your life now versus 10 years ago. Have you grown? Are you more or less blameless over that time? Have you matured or have you stayed stagnant? God desires to see his people growing. And for that reason, he desires us to choose leaders who are growing and who can avoid those accusations of low character from those inside and those outside. The second requirement, it may not seem like a character requirement at first, but it is. The elder overseer is to be the husband of one wife. Now, there's two questions that come up out of this. Does this say that an elder must be a man? And does it say that an elder must be married and married only one time to one woman? Is How particular of a qualification is this? A couple weeks ago, we looked at 1 Timothy 2, and I gave you what, what I believe 1 Timothy 2 is trying to communicate to us. That a, in a consistent sense, 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Timothy 3, um, structured together, tell us that according to Scripture, not because it's my preference or my favorite interpretation, but according to Scripture, elders are to be men. Pastors are to be men. Overseers are to be men. I think that's the clear teaching of 1 Timothy 2 and 3 when taken together. So since we spent a lot of time on that two weeks ago, we're not going to delve into that end of husband of one wife this week. Instead, we'll deal with the other question out of husband of one wife. Does this tell us that if a pastor or elder gets divorced, that they're no longer qualified to serve? Does this tell us that a single pastor or elder that's never been married is unqualified to serve? I don't think so. And here's why. The husband of one wife actually is, in the original, simply means a one-woman man. A man of one woman. And in the category of character requirements, this is not saying that this is exactly what a pastor elder must look like. It must be a married man who is faithful to his one wife, has never been divorced, and is not single, whatever. Not a, a widower. 
all of those things would be disqualified if we were too, too literal about what husband of one wife means. But if we understand it to truly mean a one-woman man, then it is a character requirement of a man that can demonstrate consistent, over the long term, consistent, faithful love to a spouse and, and maturity in the face of sexual temptation and a rampant sexual immorality. Because if you want to build the bridge between first century leader and 21st century leader, let me give you a secret. Sexual immorality has been prevalent and a problem in every stage. And so the, the leaders in the first century were tempted with sexual sin, as leaders in the 21st century are. This does not tell us that a a pastor, an elder, must be this way, this kind of married man. This tells us that a pastor must fight against sexual sin and must walk with sexual integrity and faithfulness to his wife. If he is married and if he is single, then when he gets married, should he get married, he will be faithful. If he is, if he is a widower, then he needs to have proven faithfulness over the long term to his spouse. This is a statement of maturity and character, of commitment to one woman over a long period of time. Temperate, number three. A lot of times this word gets used, temperate, to, use, to, to, be, um, to describe sobriety, to describe uh, sobriety from alcohol. Um, alcohol comes up later in this passage. We'll get there in a second. So most likely, Paul is not saying be sober and not drunk two different times in two different ways. He's using the word temperate here to talk about clear-headedness, clear-mindedness, that an elder is to have a sober mind. A mature Christian is to have a sober mind. Ephesians says it like this. When, it ta when Ephesians talks about drunkenness, it talks about drunkenness in the same breath as being filled with the Spirit. This is what the pastor, elder, the leader should do, not be filled with wine, Ephesians 5, but be filled with the Spirit. Because if you are filled with other things, whether it's wine or whether it's greed or whatever else is, uh, is, is so occupying your mind and deceiving and tormenting your mind and twisting your mind, you cannot be clear-headed and careful and, and faithful in your service as a leader. The overseer is sober in the way that, that he thinks and not prone to impulses or to distraction. The mature Christian is not prone to impulse and distraction, but prone to clear-headed thinking that is informed by the presence of the Spirit of God. That's who a temperate leader is. Self-controlled. We know what self-control is. It comes up in 1 Timothy and in Titus both. This is a sort of self-control that is also spirit control because Christians have a unique opportunity to demonstrate self-control because the Spirit of God indwells us to help us fight the fight against the sin in our lives and pursue righteousness. And so a mature Christian should be growing in self-control. Respectable, number nine, or number five, in two nine. In two nine, we have, um, when it talks about, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, 1 Timothy 2.9, we see this talk about being respectable and modest in dress. That's what we talked about two weeks ago. It's the same word here. And it is Paul describing the qualities that would cause somebody to be respected by outsiders, respected by insiders. 
So if you want to tell if somebody is a leader or not, ask the people around them. Is that person, is that person garnering, deserving of the respect of other people? Or is that person living their life in such a way that there's a large group of people that can simply say, I just don't respect that person? Recognize, both in the first century and in the 21st century, we have some cultural hostility that's factoring in here, okay? And so in these passages, Paul is saying, we want to live well with regard to insiders and outsiders. We want to have leaders over God's church that can be respected by people in the church and out of the church. All the while, Paul full well knows, he, it does not surprise him that some people in the culture just don't like Christians. And therefore, the qualities that would be respectable in the church are not always qualities that would be respectable outside of the church. We know that. We can account for that. But a mature Christian is worthy of being respected. A mature Christian, number six, is hospitable. To be hospitable means what you think it means. It means to open your home. It means to love people well. And to love people well to the point of sacrificing so that you can open your home into them Put them up for a night. Give them a meal. Give them a cup of cold water, as Jesus would describe it. To be hospitable is to love people so much, including people you don't know, that you sacrifice your comfort, your stuff, your home, your food, your beds for that person. And so, this is something that should be true of all Christians. Let's be clear. All Christians should be open with their homes. Let me tell you what your home is. Your home is an outpost of the kingdom of God in your neighborhood. People describe the church as an embassy, that we are an embassy of a foreign kingdom, that this is actually, this property belongs to the kingdom of God, and in here, we are kingdom of God citizens first. So too is the home of a believing family. It works just the same way. Your home is an embassy, an outpost of an eternal kingdom, and you are God's ambassador into your neighborhood. And you can use and view your home in such a way by opening the door to those that are hurting, to those that have needs, by opening your table in kindness and love to others. The next qualification for maturity, this one comes up in Titus. So we've, we've talked, these first six have all been in 1 Timothy, some of them 1 Timothy and Titus. And now we move to some that are only listed in Titus 1.8. Four more positive character requirements. To be a lover of good. That means this person doesn't just reluctantly show kindness. But this person loves to show kindness and to be good. Loves to celebrate the good in others. Loves to call out what, what others are doing and see and celebrate and see that as good and righteous. Number eight upright in 1 Timothy 1a. This word could also be translated as righteous. Listen to me. We do not expect, this is great news, we do not expect mature Christians to be perfectly righteous in the sense that Jesus is perfectly righteous. But again, the expectation is that God's leaders are to be pursuing righteousness and mature Christians are to be pursuing righteousness. The emphasis is that the, the, the leader of God's church must abide by God's righteous standards and seek to follow God's righteous standards. And so too is this qualification for holy. Also in, verse, in 1 Timothy 1.8, number 9 on our list, 
The call to be holy is not a call to moral perfection, but a call to, set, to be set apart for God's work and God's glory. And let's stop right here just for a second. Because this would be a really bad news list if God was really saying that in order to be a leader, in order to be a mature Christian, if God was saying you must be perfectly righteous and you must be perfectly holy, that would be a bar that no single one of us could ever reach, could ever attain to. And the good news for today is that that is not what he is saying. But he is instead saying that we are to receive Christ's righteousness and to pursue that in obedience. We are to receive the holiness of God by faith and we are to be set apart by God. Because, brothers and sisters, there's one person and only one that could actually be described as being upright, righteous, and being holy. And that's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But the good news for us as immature Christians is that Jesus died so that we could be pulled into his righteousness, pulled into that holy kingdom family of God. Because we couldn't stand in front of the holiness of God. He is so pure, so righteous, so perfect, that every single one of us should fall to our knees in his presence in such dismay at the great sin that we have in our lives. But Jesus... Jesus died so that we could enter into the presence of God, not in dismay, but in celebration, claiming the righteousness of Christ for our own, not because we earned it, but because he gave it to us at the cross. And by grace, through faith, we receive that righteousness, and a holy God can look on us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. This These two points should call us to worship Christ, the Holy and Righteous One, and worship the fact that we have our righteousness and holiness from Him, not because we deserve it. Finally, on this list, the disciplined overseer does not yield to fleshly desires or temptations. This is similar to being temperate or sober-minded, but this is a call that says, again, a mature Christian is growing. Man, woman, child, anyone who names the name of Christ is called to grow. And if you want to mature, if you want to live out more who Christ has called you to, then discipline is the way to growth. But Paul doesn't just stop with the positive characteristics. He lists five disqualifying behaviors to avoid. 1 Timothy 3.3 He says that the overseer must not be a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. An overseer is not to be a drunkard or literally not addicted to wine. This passage means that God's leader, that a mature Christian, should be led by the Spirit and not led by any other um, substance of any kind. It's not necessarily a prohibition of alcohol consumption altogether, But it is a call to discipline. It is a call to soberness. It is a call to great care when dealing with any substance that would alter someone's mind or behavior. Because again, we are not to be drunk on wine, but we are to be drunk with the Spirit. Consequently, this is not a once and for all disqualification. Here's here's one of the other reasons why I think 
being a one-woman man doesn't necessarily mean somebody that was divorced years ago should not be a leader. Because I don't believe that not a drunkard means somebody that was drunk one time years ago should be disqualified either. A sin that was committed long in the past in which there's been a, a period of disciplined maturity showing a different character from the person that did that back there, that is a person that we can appoint and we can trust as a leader. That is a person that is growing in maturity. In the same way, not violent but gentle. Maybe you once were. Maybe God used a lot of leaders throughout his history of his church who were once not gentle but violent. When we look at these disqualifying behaviors, I don't want you to see if I lose my temper one time, God just can't use me because all of a sudden I'm worthless, all of a sudden I'm not a good leader, all of a sudden I can't do this or this or this in God's kingdom. That's not what he's saying here. But he's saying the attitude of violence should not be characteristic of his leader, but rather gentleness. Christ's kingdom is a gentle kingdom. It's a strong kingdom. It's a kingdom that will overthrow every government of this world. Christ has defeated every enemy. And yet he calls his leaders to gentleness. He doesn't call his leaders to quarrelsomeness in the same verse, the next on our list. Quarrelsomeness is not that you're going to be weak and not fight about anything. That's not what Paul or God is calling for here. Christians are strong to stand for the truth. And there are truths on which we must stand in order to call ourselves Christians. This whole book, 1 Timothy, is all about guarding the truth. And when somebody comes for the truth, Christians stand up and say, no, this is the truth. But we don't pick battles just for the sake of picking battles. That's what it means to be quarrelsome. Where you're constantly finding a battle, sometimes with unbelievers, sometimes with other believers. The word that is used as quarrelsome describes somebody who is arguing for the sake of arguing. A person who is always itching to be in a battle. A person that is more focused on winning an argument than on finding the truth. So an overseer, a mature Christian, God's leader, should not be a drunkard, should not be violent, should not be quarrelsome, and should not be greedy. Not a lover of money. Because just as alcohol is a distraction, just as sexual sin is a distraction, just as quarrelsomeness is a distraction, you and me, we both know that money's a distraction. Greed's a distraction. And this one's going to come for us. So God's leaders are not to love money and to be greedy. And finally, God's leaders are not to be arrogant, overbearing, self-centered, and reckless. That's what this verse means. The arrogant self-pleaser has no regard for God's will or the needs of others because we're called to pastor, to shepherd, to love, and to serve. I told you, we had two tracks here. We're trying to, number one, identify who should be a leader and who we develop into future leadership positions. But number two, we just need a definition of maturity. Because if I don't give you a definition of what a mature Christian looks like, you don't know what maturity looks like. But the Bible is so clear in telling us this is what maturity looks like. And so that's where we are today. If you want to know what, how to grow, what to work on in order to, to grow, to, to be used by Christ in a deeper way, to be more like Christ, we now have a list that's in your hands of 15 things to work on. And if you get all those figured out, good for you. I haven't yet. But if we spend our lives pursuing these 15 qualifications of what a mature Christian looks like, 
then we have enough work for the rest of our lives and how to grow in righteousness, how to grow in maturity, and how to represent Christ better. And so we'll wrap it up this way. And I'll go ahead and ask the team to join me on stage. Here's what I want you to all walk away with. Godly character is to be pursued by all of those who profess Christ. Please don't hear me. I'm not just talking to leaders today. I'm not just talking to men today. I'm talking to followers of Christ today. We pursue this picture of maturity. But also, we honor in Christ's church this picture of maturity because godly character must be honored by those who make up Christ's church. Are we celebrating the right things in our leaders inside the church, outside of the church? Are we celebrating the right things in the relationships that we have? Are we celebrating those things that point to Christ's character? And finally, godly character must be developed. It must be pursued by everyone. It must be honored by those within the church. And it must be developed. Because I can tell you right now, none of your current elders are a perfect picture of any of these 15 points that I gave you today. But every single one of us, from the youngest down to the oldest, we are all called to growth as followers of Jesus. So here's our path laid out for us. To grow in sober-mindedness, to grow in holiness, to grow in righteousness, in hospitality, to love good more, to quarrel less, to be gentle more and violent less, to seek to be above reproach. This is the picture Christ has set out for us of what maturity looks like. And this is a picture that is not developed on your own, but only developed through the presence of God in your heart and in your life. I told you a minute ago, the best news of this whole passage is that God didn't call us to be holy in the moral perfection sense. God didn't call us to be perfectly righteous or he would reject us. God called us to be holy in that we are set apart. God called us to receive the righteousness we couldn't get on our own that only comes through Christ. So as we stand and close today, as we worship today, receive the righteousness and the holy love of a holy father and ask the Spirit of God dwelling within you as a believer, where do I go to grow in character? What challenge are you giving me today? Stand up and sing with us. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I
Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.